Hi and welcome to another episode of Woman of Strength. Now I have to be honest, I've had to do a retake on this because um, I got my next guest who's an amazing lady and she, she's going to have lots to tell you, but I pronounced her name wrong. So this is my second shot and if I get it wrong, I'm going to apologize in advance. But So tomorrow, Tamara Prestasso, and I know I've said that wrong, so apologies, <laughs> right? Please, Tamara, can you? say your name for me because I'll just be doing numerous takes. Sure, Tamara Protasso. Tamara Protasso. So there I am. I'm, I'm not great at this, but this is what this is all about. We're just being ourselves. So I'm just going to introduce uh, Tamara officially and just tell you a little bit about her. Now, so Tamara's a non-fiction editor and writer who lives in the hills outside of Melbourne, Australia, with her husband, two children, dog, cat, and six chickens. And Tamara specializes in developing and editing non-fiction books and also runs an essential oils business on the side. And I just said to her, you know, when we're off air, I probably need to talk to her too. Um, and when she's not doing that, she writes on women, bodies, and feminism. And Tamara loves chocolate in all forms except white. Now, I totally agree with you there um, because how can it be chocolate if it's white? Um, and believes that thinking and logic are underrated and that is that common sense isn't common anymore. And she used to be a showgirl. Wow. But she says that's okay because her mother already knows. So welcome, Tamara. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks very much, Anne. Um, now... All these interviews that I've been doing have been amazing and I know that you're going to have an amazing story too and so what this is all about is about being a woman of strength and so when did your journey of being a woman of strength start? Um, well I think that uh, I, it, it was more that I realised <coughs> at a particular point that it took strength to do what I was doing. Um, and then looking back, I could actually see that that strength had been there. I just hadn't known about it. So I, the catalyst for me was actually having my first child. So it was having my daughter. She's 13 now. Um, but I really did a lot of educating of myself around uh, birth and that kind of thing when I was pregnant with her. And I decided to have a home birth. Now, in Australia at the time, that was fairly controversial um, and it's still difficult here to have a home birth, but then it was a really very difficult decision to make. Um, and my, my family, one side are all medical people, so they're all doctors, nurses, anaesthetists, people who, you know, have great, um, well, they set great store by what they do and being the expert and that kind of thing. And for me to suddenly up and say, right, having my first baby and what's more, I'm having it at home, that really set up a very oppositional thing for uh, the dynamic in our family. So um, remaining determined and true to what I knew was best for me um, and best for my particular situation um, really and, and having a very successful home birth you know my I had midwives there you know it's it's a very tiny number of births in Australia or home births every year so they you know they barely show up in the statistics um, and just having that courage and that strength to continue to do what was right for me even in the face of my family support structure mm -hmm. not 
constantly um, being there for me. Um, they, they really very severely took a step back. There was a lot of rupture in the family. There was a lot of, well, we're never speaking to you again, that kind of, yeah. that kind of thing. And it really solidified within me that feeling of, yes, but this is my life. And it's not your life. <laughs> it's, it's actually my life that I get to do what I want with, not yeah. yours to dictate. And um, coming from, you know, a Russian background, you know, my name is one of those things that indicates that, you know, my family is Russian. And it really went against the culture as well because, you know, uh, in our culture we're meant to do what our parents say, we're meant to respect our elders to the degree of, oh, yes, well, of course I'll have my baby where you want me to have my baby. Yeah. Um, so it really did become quite antagonistic in there. And having that may let me actually look back at a whole lot of places in my life where I had actually been doing what my parents wanted me to do. You know, I, I, I was a high achiever at school. I... Um, you know, did elite dancing. I then got a job as a showgirl. But, um, you know, I, I really did achieve in the ways they wanted, but I realised there was always this internal part of me that was separate where I actually lived a separate life. And it made me bring more of that to the to the fore, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, and I, t I totally get that because... Um, I think it, it seems to be a common theme that when we step into our strength of being a woman and, and take control of our own life, that we actually um, lose some family members and some friends and that along the way. And um, and, it, and it's sad. It's sad that when we reflect back on our lives that we see that we live the life of someone else, you know, the life that someone else wanted us to live. So when you look back on that, where were the, where were the key sort of, um, I suppose, platforms that you sprang from to say, wow, this is me. So you gave, you know, the example of when you had your home birth. But if you look back prior to that in childhood and, and see, were there times when you decided actually this is me and not what my parents want me to be? Um. Yes, there were, but I think that it was very internal for me. Um, I was an only child until I was 12, so my brother didn't come along until I was 12. And um, so really my parents were very focused on me and that... So, but I also had a lot of time where um, I was by myself. So I used to go outside and I'd have these great imaginative kind of vistas and games and things we lived outside of the city so we had a very large garden and I was very conscious that I had this internal world that they couldn't touch yeah so while I was performing on the outside I was actually still very aware that there was a me in there that wasn't theirs um and I was quite fierce about that you know I, I would retreat in there whenever I wanted and um you know just I I just, I think I still have a sense of that. There's, there's still this, you know, sunlit meadow on the inside of me that contains the real me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and she's much more out here now and, and dwells in everyday life a lot more now. Um, but that's that ability to be myself whilst pleasing them was, I think, a very strong part of 
um, just, and I think it's become actually more clear looking back. Mm. You know, at the time, I just thought everyone was like that. You know, yeah. I just assumed everybody had this internal world where, you know, the real them dwelt and then they kind of did all this other stuff. Um, but, yes, looking looking back, I, I sort of know that that's not usually the case anymore. <laughs> yeah. So has that changed? So your experience, um, has that changed, you know, how you parent? I know this is your, your first child, but did that experience of growing up and living by your, your parents' life and their standards, has that made you a different parent or a better parent? You know, how has that impacted on, on your parenting now? Yeah, I don't know if it's made me any better. <laughs> um, but... You know, I think I'm I'm far more willing to uh, admit my children as um, people on, in their own right with their own sort of ideas of how their lives want, you know, how they would like their lives to be and um, that, yeah, so I, I'm much more willing to engage in a dialogue with them about, you know, what they're thinking or how, how they'd like their life to be I don't recall being consulted on anything much really as a kid and I'm sure that's really common you know I think we parent vastly differently these days than we used to yeah Uh, and then how I grew up but um yeah so you know tiny example my daughter is 13 going on 14 very soon and she takes forever to get ready in the morning so you know I just went, I don't, I, I just said to her the other day, I don't like mornings. I don't like sort of chiving you along and saying, come on, hurry up, keep going. Let's, you know, it, it's really um, not my ideal way to spend the before school rush. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so I said, we workshopped a few ideas. So at the moment she's trying um, the idea of getting everything ready the night before. Uh, so she doesn't have to get up any earlier. So she's seeing how she likes that. Next week, she's going to try um, not getting anything ready, but getting up earlier. So getting up half an hour to 45 minutes earlier. So she's going to try what works for her. Yeah. And I, I just can't see that that ever would have happened in my childhood. So that kind of thing, yeah, I'm, I'm really open to kind of saying to the kids, you know, well, hang on, I've not had a child your age before. So I've got no idea really. Yeah, to try and work this out together. (laughs) Let's let's see what we can do. Let's try some stuff. Let's you know, um, and if need be, let's put some resources into here or whatever. So it's yeah, that sounds sounds brilliant because what you're doing is you're teaching them life skills. You're teaching them about problem solving and coming up with different solutions that you know they can try different things out to see what's going to work for them. So yeah, and and that's great. And I think um, growing up. I mean, certainly I know with, with my parents, I was very much, I, I conformed. Um, my parents might tell you a different story, but I also learned a lot about what I didn't want to do, what I didn't want to take forward in, in my adult life. Um, what, what are some of the things that, and I, and I feel blessed that I had the childhood I did because I didn't, yeah, I, I learned so much about what I didn't want and I feel blessed about that. So what are the things that you learned from your parents that you said you know I really don't want to take that forward and I I feel quite blessed the fact that I was taught that at a young age (laughs) um well I 
I think that it really ties in with what we were just talking about with that sort of, I guess, my collaborative approach to parenting kids. Yeah. I mean, I do have incredibly strong boundaries with them. You know, they, they do have set bedtimes. They, there are certain ways of behaving that are not okay. You know, there's, there, there's a lot of boundary stuff going on. Um, but, you know, I think what I, what I learned was you, you can't actually just treat someone as, a, as your little doll, really. Yeah. Or, your, or, or just your little automation who's going to perform all the time. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm grateful. I had a, a huge amount of opportunity as a kid. Um, you know, I, I, I did a lot of activities. Um, the fact that I wasn't allowed to quit some of them was um, a, a bit of a contentious issue. You know, I, I really, really, really wanted to quit the piano when I was 12, 13. And um, my parents said, no, nope, you quit that, you quit everything. And, you know, I wasn't brave enough to kind of call them on that. Um, so, you know, with the... So, yeah, I, I did learn the value, I think. I enjoy sort of playing the piano now. I'm grateful for the ability I have. But I think I would like it more and I would probably play more if I had been allowed to quit for a bit. Yeah. Miss it a little bit and then keep going. So... I think that a bit of faith in the ups and downs and a bit of, um, you know, my, my daughter wanted to quit the violin and I said, sure. And then a little while later, she said, actually, I'd really like to try the viola. So it's, like, it's just a slightly different in, instrument. Yeah. And so now she's playing that and she's enjoying it. And I just think that um, for me, having that faith in... Um, the fact that, you know, there's a cycle. The kids will come back to the things that really actually call to them yeah. rather, than, rather than going, oh, my God, they're just going to quit music altogether and music is so good for their brains and, oh, no, you know, having this panic. It's kind of better to, to actually just go, sure, you know, quit that. You can always go back. We can always start lessons again. Yeah. You know, just see, just having that faith that there, there is a season for stuff. It will come back, you know, so I... Yeah, yeah. Not the question, actually. <laughs> yeah, no, no, you're, you're fine. And so, with with the um, you know that that no quitting, not allowed to, to quit. Has that helped you? Although it, it's um, made you parent differently in terms of your business, has that helped you? You know, growing up, you're not allowed to quit. You're not allowed to quit. Does that sort of push you forward in your business? Or absolutely, I, I could see how. Yeah, I was going to say because I could see how. Because some of the things we learn from our parents, um, we don't want to take forward in our own parenting, but we, we learn some fabulous skills that we can then transfer, especially when we work for ourselves and we've got our own business. So tell us a little bit about that, because it sounds like you would have learned a lot from your parents around, you know, not quitting. Yeah, definitely. Um, <laughs> yeah, I would say, I would say that um, I definitely have a, a lot of stickability now. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of determination and stuff just, you know, has to get done, so it gets done. Um, and, and yeah, I think it took me a number of years to actually see the positives in that um, yeah. and to be really grateful for that. Um, but I am now, which is, which is a really nice place to get to. Um, that, yeah, yeah, I do... 
yeah, so I'm, I'm really grateful for the ability, you know, not to quit. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, the, there, are, there are other things, you know, my, my parents love languages and things and, you know, I'm, I'm now an editor and, you know, our house was just full of books and full of kind of that. We, we just had thousands. I remember we moved house and, um, you know, I was, I was, you know, in my teens. So I counted all the books as I put them in boxes and there were like over 3,000 books in the house. You know? wow. <laughs> and, and so, you know, there, there was just that type of thing as well. So it's, I think a lot of the things I um, am really grateful for for my own parents is, is cultural stuff, you know, just mm. having that culture of um, education and, you know, books being, you know, some of the most important things there there are and, you know, that kind of thing. And I really do owe a lot of what I do now to that early, those early experiences of having, you know, the books around and I was just allowed to read whatever I wanted. So there was great freedom. There was no censorship whatsoever in terms yeah. of read. Um, they just had faith that if something was too old for me or the concepts were confusing, that I would put it down and pick it up again at some other point. And yeah. in that way, they had a massive amount of trust. They just never, you know, they never batted an eyelid no matter what I picked up. And they had a huge and eclectic collection of books, you know, from, from the classics to, you know, through to kind of horror, through to, you know, um, popular fiction, literary fiction, women's fiction, erotica, everything. They just had everything. So I, I really read extremely widely and some very adult books for a young kid, I guess, but it didn't, it didn't phase me really. Yeah. And it, and it is, I think when we look back on our childhood, um, you know, a lot of people, go into that place and sort of blame, you know, well, I am who I am because of this all happened to me in my childhood. But I always say to people, look for the diamonds because there are always diamonds, you know, even though your parents wouldn't allow you to quit. That, that equipped you for, for now, you know, a, a stage in, in your life, in your business and, and career. And there's always things that we pull through, isn't there? I certainly know with my childhood, you know, I was, I, I didn't ever feel that um, my parents were proud of what I achieved or there was always negative comments around. And so that, that fueled my fire to be determined to be successful, whereas other people would go, well, you know, I, I could never be successful because no one thought I was ever going to be. And so, so I love hearing um, people's stories of their childhood and what they brought through in, into their adult life that, that really sort of pushes them forward. So... And I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you got into, so you've talked about, you know, into the editing because you've talked about, you know, books surrounded you in your childhood and you did lots and lots of reading. It's, was that what sort of inspired you to do what you do today or is there another story to get to that journey, to that part of the journey? Um, I, think, I think it did. I think it, uh, you know, it definitely played a part. It laid the groundwork. You know, there, there was always... You know, people always had several books on the go um, at once at my house. Um, you know, my mum's reading stack was kind of yay high <laughs> on her bedside table and it really depended on mood. And so, you know, and dad would come home from work and read and 
um, I guess it helps that I was in an area that didn't easily get television, so um, reading was kind of where it was at. Um, but I think even earlier back, um, Russian was my first language, so um, they spoke it to me as a baby, my grandparents spoke it to me. I had no clue that there was another language in the country I was living in. <laughs> I didn't have a concept of, of, of English at all until I got sent to daycare. Um, <laughs> wow. So, yes, mum went back to work. She's an English teacher and she went back to work and popped me into daycare and um, I went up to some kids and spoke to them and they all shut up and took a few steps back and started looking at me like I had another head and <laughs> and I spoke to them again and they just didn't understand a word I was saying because I was speaking Russian and yeah. so I think for me a lot of my um, and it sounds odd to say it but I, I learned English really fast of course kids do but I think a lot of my love of language comes from learning a couple of languages really early and just I think from that being able to see how English puts itself together and for me language is a really visceral experience it's it's it I you know I know I've got a form of synesthesia so for me language is about rhythm and about how the words and sentences flow together and um, that combined with that early experience I think just made me really passionate about language. And so, you know, I did English and English Lit all the way through school and then did a double English major at university and really, you know, I had various jobs in between university and having children. But once my kids were uh, school age and my youngest was due to start school, I suddenly went, oh, I really need something to do now. And I did a bit of proofreading for um, just colleagues of my husband's, he's an engineer, and then someone was writing a book that he knew. I edited that, you know, for not particularly much money at the time, <laughs> um, the experience, and then from there I went, ah, this is what I can do. So it, it did take a bit of a convoluted journey there. Um, yeah. There's always just been that thread of really loving writing, um, language helping people get it right somehow so it yeah it's always been a passion uh but it's just nice to have found a way that i can actually use it to help <laughs> yes yes great now i i know that we're always told that every single one of us has a story inside of us to tell and so if there's anyone watching any ladies out there watching or listening to this and they're thinking, you know, like myself, because I'm in the process of writing a book in the very early stages, what advice would you give us? You know, if we're, we're wanting to write a book, what, how do we start? How do we start that process? Oh, so much advice. <laughs> <laughs> but just some key. Keep it short. <laughs> of course, of course. Um, so firstly, yes, everyone's got a story, and I think um, story is crucial to everything you know yeah. we we're storytelling animals it's just what we do it's how we understand the world we we hardly take a step out there in the world without telling ourselves a story about it you know yeah. oh look it's a lovely day you know that's yeah. immediately a story it's not just 
okay, sun is shining. It's this day is lovely, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the, the first thing to do is just start. Start, just start writing, start getting it down. Shelve the, the inner critic. The inner critic has absolutely no place in drafting anything. Um, and then it's, it's a matter of actually finishing something. Yeah. <laughs> so starting is the first hurdle. Finishing is the second. You can work on something for a really long time and never, ever, ever be finished. Yeah. Um, I find that the more advice you seek in that writing process, the less likely you are to finish it. Mm. Uh, so I do speak to a lot of people and I, I used to do a lot of writing coaching a year or two back. So helping people actually get their books finished. Um, and the thing I noticed was the more someone sort of diluted their attention, the more that they actually went out and said to people, oh, hey, do you want to read, you know, a chapter? The, the more they started focusing outward instead of inward and right. that inward journey is the really important thing. So get it down first, then, you know, draft it yourself. A number of times it, editors will be really happy if you've actually gone back over your first draft a number of times. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, it, will also save you, it will also save you time and money. Um, yeah. If you've gone over it yourself a few times. And then, you know, really, then you can see the shape of it. So if, you've, if it's a non-fiction book, if you've got people you're already thinking of actually helping with this thing, then um, try and think of them throughout the writing or through the redrafting process. If... If it's more of a memoir or of or an autobiography, then it's definitely um, you try and tell it in stories. So there there needs to be a bit of a a timeline, a bit of a container for it. It can't just kind of oh, and then one day I woke up and went to lunch with a friend, and you know it yeah kind of it needs to have hooks and containers and things yeah. So yes, great. Well, that, that that's good. It's good to know because it's like. I start writing and then I, yeah, like you said, the inner critic comes in and it's like, no, no, you can't write that. But it's it's like from your heart stuff and then I rip it up and it's like, so now now what I'm doing, I don't know if it's right or wrong, but it's, it works for me, is every time I think of something or something just comes and it's, I believe that it has come from the universe or heart or wherever, I just get my voice memo out on my phone and I just speak into my phone because you haven't always got a, pen and paper already so how I'm going to get that into some structure that'll be my challenge I'm sure <laughs> well, that's a really good way of doing it and um, yeah so many people find that that gets them over the hurdle of actually um, getting stuff down is actually just recording yourself speaking it I know people yeah. who go for walks and they have their phone and their earphones in and they just talk as they walk because it's I think sometimes sitting down at the keyboard and staring at the blank page can be a real uh, yeah to people. Yeah, it's a it's a killer. I, for me, it's like how can you be creative in front of a keyboard and a screen? It's like oh, uh, yeah. But it's but it, like you said, everyone's different, isn't it? So I know me being outside in nature. Um, the two places where I find my inspiration is in the shower in the morning, which I think 99% of people say the same. Or if I'm just out walking and, and just amongst nature, it's like, wow. And, and all this stuff comes through and I'm like, 
wow, I didn't even know that I <laughs> even knew that or thought that. So yeah, that's so common. And something you just said reminded me of one of my favourite things to um, one of the favourite concepts that I have, and and it's 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 that if you've got the urge to write something. Um, then there's someone out there who actually needs to hear it and they need to hear it in the way that you're writing it, um, not from someone else. You know, it's for me that spark of inspiration is actually it's some sort of guidance mm. somewhere. Um, I, have a, I have a friend in her 70s and she calls these taps on the shoulder from the universe, she, she calls it a memo from the management. So she calls... Oh, I love that. <laughs> Spirit or the universe, she calls it the management and she's like, yep. oh, yep, the management's been in touch, got to go and do this, you know, got to write this now. So um, I, I really believe that that actually, there is a force that does that. Yeah, um, I, I to totally agree because it's like this stuff comes and you go, wow, where did that come from? And it's like, yeah, because I, I keep joking with my husband saying, we need to get um, a recorder in the shower that's waterproof. <laughs> It's like, you know, I, I could write a whole article, you know, a blog article in the shower and I get out and I think, right, I need to get dressed and do that, go to my office. And by the time I get in my office space, it's gone. Yeah. And yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, and, yeah. for, and for me, just going that step further and going, if you're having that inspiration, it means that there is someone who needs to hear it. Yeah. Um, and if you don't write that, then they actually go hungry. You're actually leaving them, um, you know, sort of bereft of what you're, what you would actually share with them. Yeah. Um, so that's not exactly being of service if you're going to, <laughs> if you're going to keep getting in your own way. Um, yeah. So yes, it's it's very much a dialogue with the, um, with you know, the universe. Yeah. No. I, yeah. Totally agree. So, how can our beautiful women get in touch with you? You know, because like we said, everyone's got a book inside of them, and I'm, I'm sure that you know people listening to this will go, "Wow, I, I you know, I need to, to be in touch with Tamara, or at least you know, make contact." So, how can they do that? Sure. Well, I do have a website, um, but it is with that awfully complicated name. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so it's www.tamaraprotasso.com, which is T-A-M-A-R-A-P-R-O-T-A-S-S-O-W.com and that'll take them to my blog and there's various info there about editing and how to write and the services I provide. Fantastic. I've really enjoyed speaking with you. It's been great. Thank you so, so much. And, uh, yeah, any of you ladies out there wanting to write, you know exactly where you need to go and you'll find the information um, below this anyway. So, but, yeah, thank you once again. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.